Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? Hello. Out there, hi. I have this plant. His name is Steve. I look up to Steve. Literally, every morning as I stretch, I get up around 4.30 and writhe around on the floor for an hour, trying to pop my slip discs back into place, but more often than not, I end up just laying there, focused on Steve, who sits on a bookshelf, his vines stretched out across the shutters of our living room window. Steven gets what he needs, sunlight and water, and he's flourishing. He doesn't smoke, doesn't booze, doesn't stress, he just is. He has what he needs, and he's just chilling. I like that about my plant Steve, the simplicity of his life, the clear recipe to his contentment. But like I said, Steve's a plant, and just because he looks healthy on the outside and content doesn't mean he necessarily is. Maybe he's terrified, constantly worried that the sun may not come up again or the rain may not fall, so he hoards reserves, and like a doomsday prepper, constantly dreads and looks forward to the end simultaneously. I smoke weed in the morning, too. Just a, li- <laughs> just a little. Just enough to get me thinking. Now that it's legal in Canada, I can pick out what works for me. It's not a gamble anymore. Let me quickly explain why this is so great for people who enjoy the benefits of marijuana. Imagine going to the liquor store to grab a bottle of wine to enjoy with dinner. It takes forever to find the place, as it's always moving. You make phone call after phone call trying to find a way to get it, and when you finally do, you're forced to drive to some shady area and knock on an uninviting door, usually with a dog barking behind it, where then you are hustled in like a hostage once the door opens. You ask if they have wine, which is met with a scoff, The wine got swept up in the big bus last month. Didn't you hear? Homie, all they have is tequila. Row upon row of the shit, and your host makes you smell a bunch of it. And you do, because he's a fucking wacko. Some of it smells like gas, and some of it smells like dish soap. You grab one of the cheaper bottles and hand over 40 bucks, then you're forced to listen to your host ramble about how dangerous he is. As he warms to you, he starts opening up bestowing insights regarding the enigma that is him. And once he feels he can trust you, he's taking you back to see the stills, where a few of his low-life friends are mixing up a fresh batch of tequila and doing coke. And oh, if you ever need coke, we got it, man. Meth, MDMA, we got you. And you think, shit, 
it's been a while since I did blow. Maybe I'll grab 80. <laughs> and you do a line to show you're cool. And suddenly this wine run has turned into a party. They say marijuana is a gateway drug. But the people you meet by having to covertly buy it is the true gateway. Anyways, you manage to escape out the back door into an alleyway with your big dirty bottle of homemade tequila three hours later, where you're promptly arrested for possessing alcohol. That's what it's been like my whole life buying pot. And now that it's legal, all the anxiety that comes with interacting with drug dealers is gone. I buy shit specifically engineered to combat anxiety and give me a sense of well-being. In fact. Anyways. Where was I? The only problem is that it's going to destroy this podcast, apparently. People, we're all looking for contentment. Some of us are happy with others just believing that we're content. Like that's the goal, to fool everyone into thinking you're winning. And I say to that, ignorance is bliss. Go nuts. Do you. But for me, I want the real thing. And I know the steps necessary. Financial stability, health, and a positive relationship with myself. Those three things will bring me happiness in every other facet of my life. I know this. Thanks to Steve. And weed. Thanks to plants. But I also know that my path is a fortunate one. Yes, I have my issues with drugs and alcohol and gambling, but I'm growing out of them. Denial, all the coffee drinkers at the AA table will say, but incredibly, we all aren't built the same, believe it or not. No disrespect, I just find I personally work better alone when it comes to my demons, and when I say my path is fortunate, what I mean is that I'm not dogged by horrific impulses. I don't see children in a sexual way. I don't hate women so much that I want to choke to death half a dozen annually. When my neighbor's dog shits on my lawn, I don't fantasize about luring it into my backyard to punt it into my compost heat and beat it with a rake and bury it. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> maybe maybe that's a little specific, um, you know, but I, I would never actually do it. There are those of us with massive dead trees that interrupt our paths. Hang-ups, fetishes, obsessions. And no matter how healthy and bright our skin, how straight and white our teeth, how well-dressed, well-mannered, well-spoken, we're a fucking caged beast on the inside. And we need to cut loose from time to time or we'll devour ourselves. We need to spend some time breaking down those obstacles, cutting up those trees, before we can move on. I don't believe in the devil. I don't believe in God. But the other day, Steve told me that I sure as shit ought to believe in energy, in vibes, because that's why he's so green. Off the vibes of the house, man. And that's why some kids grow up to be naturally happy adults. Off the vibes of their parents. And that's how the whole world could find itself one day. By understanding that we're all in the same wavelength. But this wavelength needs to be tuned. And that's where Steve lost me. He and his plant friends may all be pretty similar, but us humans, we're all fucked up. I've never been in a workplace that was harmonious, let alone a neighborhood or a town. We're so far away from peace it's not even worth speaking of. But he's right, my plant Steve, about vibes. I've been in rooms where a bad person enters and without saying a word the air grows thick with tension same can be said about good open caring people who by the way seem to always weaken dark people when the two clash they brighten things up relax the room just by being in it and these extreme people these special outstanding types 
maybe the only ones worth anything in this mess, because they're genuine, working solely off of what they are, making an impression everywhere they go, for better or worse. They are affecting the rest of us. They're the ones who are tuning the wavelength, perhaps. They're taking real chances. They aren't pretending to be brave by shaming people from the safety of their keyboard, virtue signaling for likes, defiantly holding their heads up while believing they're on the front lines of battle. Battle only exists when there's a risk to yourself, and truly good people do battle every day. They're out there, in everyone's face, being consistently real, because they can't help themselves. I look at Steve differently since being introduced to this episode's despicable muse, Rodney Alcala, the so-called dating game killer, a stupid nickname that I decided to avoid because he's so much more than that, or, or less. Eh, more, I guess, fuck, I don't know. I look at Steve's hearty, dark green tentacles and think of how he might be thriving, not only from care, but from positive vibes. Then I think of Alcala, with his big, beautiful hair and movie star looks, his wide, glowing smile and dark, simmering eyes, and I wonder, if he had fought off his urges, would he have shriveled and become a drone of a human being, full of discontent and lost in a bottle? I wonder if he was just doing what he had to do, to be content, if he had four or five needs to be met in order to achieve his own personal happiness, and they included hunting, capturing, then brutally murdering pretty girls. These are the kind of thoughts that make people look at you funny. They even seem to make my plants shiver a little as I shoot them like daggers at them from my wounded dog pose on the floor. The overriding sense that creates such thoughts is that there's a wave of murderous need that follows us from our shared history, that there's a piece of what we are missing, now that for the most part we're safe on our couches with a coffee in one hand, a TV remote in the other free to search out things to be offended by on the internet because our lives are so cozy and dull. We need some action. We need to hurt something. Our ruthless and murderous past. The reason we're at the top of the food chain. Some of us may still need to exercise that muscle to feel whole. Or, if I really want to be far out, it could be that something ancient and mean exists out there in the cosmos. Something transmitting sickness and destruction. Unlike the beautiful spores Steve traveled here within to incite panspermia, these seeds are spread psychically. In the same way a chill is delivered to a spine or a sense of danger overcomes you when a darkly affected one enters your personal space. These seeds grow nothing. They malform what's already there. They turn flourishing organisms like Steve and Rodney Alcala circa 1968 into nightmares dressed as dreams. Welcome to Dark Topic, I'm your host, Jack Luna. This is episode 19, The Killing Machine. Don't touch me, I'm a real 
September 25th, 1968. Sunset Boulevard, Hollywood, Los Angeles. Eight-year-old Tally Shapiro is happily making her way to school along the infamous street, craning her neck at the palm trees that stand sentinel at roadside. Her school, Gardner Elementary, is some distance from the hotel her family has been enjoying since their home suffered damage in a fire. The Chateau Marmont. No. <laughs> the Chateau Marmont. Marmont, known as a party palace for all forms of artists, including Led Zeppelin, The Doors, early on F. Scott Fitzgerald, later John Belushi, who underestimated a speedball and died while staying in Bungalow 3, is where the Shapiro family has been laying their heads as of late. Tally's father is an executive in the music biz, and despite the Chateau not being known for its family-friendly atmosphere, Tally, her sister, her brother and mother, have been enjoying the experience. The one thing Tally doesn't like, however, is that she's now expected to ride the bus to and from school. To avoid this, the self-sufficient little girl is taking it upon herself to get up early each morning and make the long walk to Gardner Elementary down Sunset on her own. This is a secret. Her parents have no idea that their daughter is currently bobbing along with her backpack, passing vagrants and sleepy hippies, eyes bright and shining, seeing nothing that doesn't charm her with its own uniqueness. From his standstill at a stoplight, a stranger, Donald Haynes, observes a vehicle pull up alongside young Tally. He's been watching the little girl make her way down the boulevard with some concern as he waits for the light to change. She seems much too young to be walking alone. And when the cream-colored drop-top slows and a well-dressed man with ridiculous curly hair begins coaxing the girl to his vehicle, Donald Haynes locks in on what he immediately recognizes as a suspicious situation. The light finally switches to green, but rather than turn towards his destination, Donald pulls over to watch the strange scene play out, and when the little girl relents and hops into the passenger seat, Donald Haynes is compelled to follow. Tally knows better, but when the nice man tells her that he knows her parents and that he has a psychedelic poster for her, she can't see any more reason to resist his request to enter his vehicle. The smile remains on the man's face as they drive, but he is no longer engaging with her. His eyes have grown dark, and that smile, it reminds her of something. She's seen it somewhere before. They pull into an apartment complex and park. Not a word has been spoken since she closed the passenger door beside her. Tally knows now that she's made a terrible mistake as the man exits, walks around the car, and helps her out by the hand. As they walk in silence to a staircase and up to an outdoor walkway that overlooks the parking area, Tally looks out at a sunny day for what she knows will be the last time. She doesn't see Donald Haynes down there, watching for the door that the man is taking her to. All that she can see is the man's smile in her mind. That dead smile. Like a skeleton's grin, she finally realizes. Then she's pushed into the building through a hole in its side. And the world goes black.
Donald Haynes is running down the street. He does not like what he just saw. The girl was clearly uncomfortable, and the man moved like a thief, with a calm urgency that only broke once he reached his apartment door and appeared to shove the child through it. Donald needs to let the world know what he's witnessed, but he's starting to feel crazy. What has he witnessed? An uncle picking up his niece? A brother giving his younger sister a ride? No. That was a fucking kidnapping, and God knows what's happening to that little girl right now. It takes not a small amount of restraint to keep from screaming for help as he trots uselessly down the street under a sun that burns way too bright. He's panicking. Every moment feels excruciatingly crucial. He's left his car behind and is just about to head back to it when, like a mirage, Donald spots a phone booth. He's honest with the dispatcher, makes it clear that he hasn't necessarily witnessed a crime, just a situation that doesn't feel right. The dispatcher decides to play it safe and, much to Donald's relief, agrees to send out a cruiser. He heads back to his car to wait, feeling like he's failing, even though likely anyone would say he's done everything right. Anyone, that is, but the little girl getting annihilated behind the sun-splashed apartment door. A door that Donald locks his eyes on now. A door that his conscience is screaming at him to go bust down himself. And fast. Officer Camacho arrives at the address on DeLongpre Avenue. It's an irregular call. This is one of West Hollywood's more peaceful sections, so he's not expecting anything too heavy. Which is nice. It's his first day back after having been shot, after all. He's prepared for an argument over a parking spot, or a drunk who's stumbled over to the right side of the tracks for rest on a well-manicured lawn. Something simple to help ease him back into action. But when Camacho exits his squad car, he freezes. His mouth goes dry at the sound of heavy footsteps approaching from somewhere, and his optimism is yanked from beneath him like a clumsily performed tablecloth trick. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family. We are about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash darktopic and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D.com slash dark topic to check it out. Badlandsfood.com.
Donald Haynes sees the cop reaching for his weapon and wisely halts, then meekly calls out that he's the caller. It has been agony waiting, and he wants to hand over the information of which door the girl was taken behind before he loses it. He's been having this crazy feeling that the door is going to disappear, that when help finally arrives, he'll be standing in front of a large brick wall, muttering about a lost little girl, and the police will take him straight to the loony bin. Officer Camacho's eyes morph from wild to steely as the decent citizen expels his story in a torrent. It's apparent that this situation could be enormous, so he quickly calls for backup. Then, Camacho is scaling the staircase and banging at the apartment door in question before trepidation can catch him again. He detects that someone's inside from a shifting noise that follows his initial knocking. It's the kind of noise you might hear in the middle of the night. Scurrying. Then dead silence. The movements of a rodent. It's immediately obvious that something isn't right here. Camacho announces himself and is about to kick his way in, overcome with a sense of urgency, when the curtain covering a window adjacent to the door opens at the top, and a tan, sweaty face holding a plume of curly hair above it appears, hand clutching the curtain like a shawl to maybe cover a nude torso. Uh, just a minute, I was in the shower, officer. Camacho steps back and nods at the face before it disappears. Ten seconds pass, and it's enough time to think, his hair was dry, before a moan comes from beyond the door, causing Camacho to automatically kick it in. Cameras. Cameras and camera equipment everywhere. Photos of women. Photos of girls. All posing, all smiling. Most seem forced. Uncertain. It's an unnerving scene, made even more so by the blood Camacho immediately notices that's smeared across the living room floor and trails to what appears to be a kitchen. Backup arrives as he begins clearing rooms. In the kitchen he finds a little girl, naked. Her clothes lay in a crumpled heap nearby. A barbell lays across her neck, below her battered and bloody face. He removes it and finds it has been choking her. He's amazed to feel a pulse when he checks for it. There's so much blood, much of it coming from below her waist. Where is that fucking animal? Gone. Maybe even naked at a back exit. They search forever, but the curly-haired young man with the sweaty face and black eyes has evaporated. The man they discover to be named Rodney Alcala, 25 years old, a photography student attending UCLA, has vanished without a trace. Two weeks later, across the country in New York City, a man exactly resembling Alcala will walk into the NYU Art Studies office and introduce himself as John Berger and begin a new life. As he does so, the skin he molted and left behind in California is examined thoroughly by investigators. Rodrigo Alcala, later known as Rodney, was born in San Antonio, Texas on August the 23rd, 1943, to Mother Anna Maria and Father Raul. Rodney, along with his older brother and two sisters, grew up middle class and without incident until their grandmother fell ill when Rodney was eight, and the entire family moved to Mexico to be with her until she passed away. During this period, sometime between 1951 and 53, Rodney's father returned to the States and settled in California, leaving his family behind. In 1954, after his grandmother passes, Rodney is uprooted again along with his siblings, and they also moved to California 
but not to be with her father, who abandoned them, where Rodney dominates Catholic school with top marks and is by all accounts a popular and well-adjusted student. He graduates at the top of his class in 1960 from his East Los Angeles High School, and a year later heads to North Carolina to train in the military as a paratrooper. On intake, his IQ is tested as being 140-plus. Genius potential level. Investigators poring over Rodney Alcala's past are as bored as you are until they come across some information that in 1961, a year or so into his service, Alcala goes AWOL and shows up soon after on his mother's East L.A. doorstep. Anna Maria begs her son to turn himself in, and he does, where soon after he is examined as mentally ill and eventually discharged from the military with a diagnosis of chronic severe antisocial personality disorder. A commanding officer contributed to the final report, adding what basically amounts to be a warning about Alcala, sharing that he felt Rodney to be a completely selfish person who was only out to gain and not willing to sacrifice anything for others, unless it meant some sort of exponential return. Alcala enrolls as an art and photography student at UCLA. He is charming, good-looking, and smart, attributes that endear him to his fellow classmates and teachers, as well as any pretty girl he meets on the street or by the beach who he respectfully asks for a photograph, a photo that eventually will end up in a dark room, of which its floor, in 1968, will be marked by the bloody boot prints of the officers who clear it after responding to the suspicions of Donald Haynes. Investigators speak to one of Alcala's professors, who is as shocked as anyone that Rodney is being accused of horribly raping and attempting to murder a child. The Rodney he and everybody else knows would never hurt a fly. John Berger is loving New York. So much to see. So much to do. So many women. Berger, as I explained, is the alias of Rodney Alcala. But aside from the moniker, not much has changed. Berger excels as an art and photography student at NYU, just as he had at UCLA. He's well-liked, charming, and completely under the radar. Besides the fact he continues to grow and tend to his curly hair as if it were a prized pet. For all the phony humility Mr. Tall, Dark, and Handsome doled out in his lifetime, that hair would always expose him for what he was, a vain and shallow narcissist. Berger has kept his nose clean, as far as we know, for the three years that have passed since he was interrupted so rudely while murdering a child. Young Tally Shapiro survived her ordeal, but remembers nothing after having entered Alcala's apartment. Thank God. He graduates from MIU with ease. One of his professors would later comment on the man they all knew as John Berger. Quote, There was a quiet determinism that seemed to pervade everything he did. End quote. My trusty researcher, Dr. Barak, noted that determinism was likely not the intended word from that quote, more likely determination. But as we'll see, determinism works. Rodney Alcala was maybe completely helpless to become what he was. A killing machine. John Berger is not without restraint. He's been behaving himself, and, incredibly, has been doing so while seasonally employed at a drama camp during his summer breaks. An all-girls camp in New Hampshire, as an art counselor. The equivalent of one on a diet staying disciplined while eyeballing aromatic, blistering meat all day and slipping it into buns at a hot dog stand. But he'll finally break, and at the most inopportune of times. It's in the summer of 71 that investigators back in California, at a loss as to where Rodney Alcala has resurfaced, 
managed to get his face on the FBI's most wanted list, and posters are distributed throughout the country, profiling Alcala as well as sharing his glamour shot. It's John Berger's doom that one lands in a post office near a quaint little drama camp in New Hampshire. Berger, meanwhile, washes his paintbrushes, then takes a dip in the lake following a hard day of art counseling. He's careful not to get his hair wet, soaking himself in the opposite way to his supplies. He has plans tonight, the same plans he's had every other night since summer began. He's headed to the city in the hopes of capturing some beauty, and not just with his trusty Nikon camera. As he treads water, observing the forbidden fruit dangling all about him on this early evening in late June, he's almost certain he's going to get lucky later. He must, in fact, or else one of these little girls is going to end up with a bite out of her. It's in late August that two girls from drama camp head to the local post office to mail letters to their family and get stuck inside while waiting out a rain cloud's relief. On the wall hangs a wanted poster featuring the face of a man they recognize, their art counselor, Mr. Berger. Initially, they think it must be some joke, but they mention the posting to their camp director, and he heads over to check it out himself. One look and a glance at the horrific charges sends him spiraling to the front desk to borrow the post office phone. The next morning, John Berger is arrested for the crimes of Rodney Alcala. He's resistant to admit who he truly is, even after his fingerprints are matched. His response to an interrogator, when asked about the brutal rape and attempted murder of a little girl back in Hollywood, is quite telling. Quote, I don't want to talk about Rod Alcala and what he did. Perhaps there is shame in that outburst, but more likely frustration. Frustration that his new life is over, and just as the crimes of John Berger have begun. Rodney Alcala has flown back to California to face the music leaving investigators in Queens, New York, scratching their heads over the discovery of a young airline stewardess who has been beaten, bitten, raped, strangled, then posed in her apartment. No signs of forced entry. They're looking at the boyfriend, who had discovered her one morning in late June, but he's not the guy. They know it. Whoever did this had done it before, and would do it again. This was the work of calculated sadism and forethought, there's evidence that the victim was brought to death, then revived, only to be brutalized again. Nothing domestic about this murder. For every officer who looks at the scene, their reaction is foreign. Even though they are accustomed to homicide, they know what they have here is somehow different. The fear is palpable in the apartment still. What happened is almost always obvious at a crime scene, but the way this one played out can be felt from the walls. Walls that seem traumatized and desperate to speak. A killing machine. That's how one investigator later described Rodney Alcala, a.k.a. John Berger, a bi-coastal serial killer who ruined God knows how many young women, girls, and perhaps even young men if you pay close enough attention to his prized photographs, of which there are thousands, many containing victims yet to be identified, no doubt. We'll never know how many. Alcala didn't kill for notoriety, 
He killed because it was his nature. And saying that he killed is completely disingenuous. He humiliated. He tortured. He terrified. Then he destroyed before posing the bloody husk of his muse and calmly snapping a few candid shots to keep as mementos. Rodney Alcala is likely the most prolific serial killer many of us have barely heard of. A man that's piqued interest from time to time as he once appeared on a game show, The Dating Game. And we'll touch on that soon. But beyond that obvious marveling within his character, charm, there is a deep evil that permeates through him. Deeper than that that motivated Bundy, BTK, Dahmer, or Gacy. This so-called killing machine is just as described. A machine hardwired to enjoy pain and suffering, motivated almost exclusively to collect horrible memories, while horrible to most, thrilling to a man like Alcala. Rodney is not helpless to his demons. He is the demon, a true outlier, more than capable of behaving as a normal person, because a part of him was. If necessary, he would simply turn the light to that section of himself, on, like a switch in a living room. But more often than not, if he got you alone, he'd relax and allow his true light to shine. His safe light. You know, the type of illumination used in a dark room. The type that washes innocent images in deep red, perverting them. This is the filter of which Alcala sees the world through. Everything developing before him and by his hand. Coming to life. In a baptism. Of blood. Casper, everybody. Casper is a sleep brand that makes expertly designed products to help you get your best rest one night at a time. At this point, I'm sure you've all heard about Casper, especially on this fucking podcast. <laughs> With over 20,000 reviews and an average of 4.8 stars across Casper, Amazon, and Google, Casper is becoming the Internet's favorite mattress. But did you know? Casper offers two other mattresses, The Wave and The Essential. The Wave features a patent-pending premium support system to mirror the natural shape of your body. The Essential has a streamlined design and a price that won't keep you up at night. Casper mattresses offer free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada and delivers right to your door in a small, how'd they do that, size box. You can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial, and hey, if you're not completely satisfied, Casper offers hassle-free returns. So... If you're in the need of a new mattress and want to support the show, head over to casper.com slash topic and get $50 towards select mattresses by using promo code TOPIC at checkout. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's casper.com slash topic and promo code to- fucking TOPIC at a checkout at checkout for $50 towards select mattresses. Call it a lucky break. Call it a flawed system. Rodney Alcala saw it as a green light to begin his career as a serial killer. Once back in Los Angeles, he's tried for the rape, battery, and attempted murder of eight-year-old Tally Shapiro. Unfortunately, the Shapiro family has relocated to Mexico, maybe to escape the memory of what happened to their daughter. The DA, as a result, decides to skip the trial and go for a plea deal. Alcala pleads guilty to the charge of child molestation, and on May the 9th, 1972, receives a sentence of 1 to 10 years. It's an indeterminate sentence, meaning that Alcala can begin appeals for parole as soon as he serves a year, and likely earn release if he plays his cards right. He manages to finally convince a prison psychiatrist of his complete rehabilitation by August of 1974, a little over two years into punishment, 
for his heinous crime, Rodney Alcala, is back on the streets. A free man. He moves in with his mother, who sets him up with a private room that has a separate entrance and a vehicle. Rodney soon picks up work as a street photographer in South L.A. and is snapping photos again back in his home territory, a place he thought he'd never be able to return to. October 13, 1974. Alcala is cruising the Pacific Coast Highway in Huntington Beach when he spots a young girl, who he believes to be around 10 years old, waiting at a bus stop. The girl is actually 13 and a little more hesitant than he'd like her to be when he pulls up and offers her a ride to school. He manages to convince the girl that he's a friend of her family by using her name, Julie. Julie fails to realize that the man has picked this information up from a label on one of her binders, and when he offers her a poster, she's sold. When they pass her school, Julie begins to panic and attempts to jump out of the car. Akala pulls over. They are near a cliff and the girl is running towards its edge. Rodney sprints over and manages to pick her up. He then sits her on a rock and tries to calm her down. A park ranger has witnessed some of this and pulls up, unbeknownst to Alcala. As he approaches, he can smell marijuana. The girl looks panicked to him, and the older man, who has lit a joint and is now trying to ram his tongue down the little girl's throat, is completely out of line. The park ranger confronts Alcala, who immediately begins to weave some tale of the two having been hiking and were just taking a break. Julie screams out that she's been kidnapped, and the ranger decides to handcuff the man just to be safe. As he does so, Alcala immediately changes gears, claiming Julie had been the one who bought the weed they were smoking and was just saying she'd been taken against her will to avoid getting in trouble. It's a quick lie, and almost believable, but the park ranger has their names run and soon finds that he has a parolee in his possession. When he learns of Alcala's prior conviction of child molestation, he keeps a close eye on his prisoner until he's safely in a squad car. This incident is a parole breach, obviously. Alcala has been forbidden to kidnap any more little girls, so he's sent to Chino, a.k.a. the California Institute for Men. He spends two and a half years there, then is sent to San Luis Obispo, where he takes advantage of a self-improvement program and, as per usual, achieves top marks. By June of 1977, Alcala is in his mid-30s and granted parole. He now has a parole officer he is to check in with regularly, and on one of these visits, he requests permission to visit New York to see family. He is given this permission and lands in the Big Apple, just as things are getting strange. July 13, 1977. The Great New York City Blackout. Son of Sam is on the loose. Fire hydrants are cracked open for people to cool down. Police are stretched thin, responding to rampant looting, arson calls. Over 1,000 fires were set, and around 1,500 stores were looted in the 25 hours it took to get the power back on. It's absolute chaos, literally remembered as New York's Dark Age. And while all this havoc ensued, a young woman named Ellen Hover, 23, the daughter of Herman Hover, sorry if I'm fucking that name up, owner of the legendary Ciro nightclub in Hollywood, and godchild of Sammy Davis Jr. and Dean Martin, has gone missing from her midtown apartment. Police are much too busy for the Hover family to trust, so they hire a P.I. and put up a $100,000 reward. In their daughter's apartment, a notepad is found, with the name John Berger, photographer, written upon it. The FBI eventually tracked down Alcala once they learned this to be a former alias. Alcala refuses to take a polygraph, but admits to photographing Ellen while visiting. Without a body, there's not much that can be done, apparently, and the focus goes back to catching the gunman who continues to terrorize New Yorkers 
at the behest of his neighbor's dog. Rodney Alcala heads home. The son of Sam is finally brought into custody weeks later. David Berkowitz is off the streets and on the front page of every newspaper in the country. Alcala, meanwhile, develops his photos, many of them featuring the vast woods of the Rockefeller estate as a backdrop, a spot where years later, after it's learned that Alcala would often spend time sitting and staring at into those woods from a high vantage point, the skeleton of Ellen Hover would be discovered by Detective Donald Tassick from NYPD Missing Persons, who worked heroically and alone to find the missing girl, on a hunch that she was the one who Alcala would come to reminisce over. Not long after the ominous disappearance of the young socialite in New York, Jill Barscombe, a 21-year-old from upstate New York, who excelled in academics, athletics, music, and volunteer work, effectively earning herself recognition as a golden child amongst her ten siblings, disappears. Her family receives a phone call from Jill in October of 1977, where she tells her mother she's in California and had left without notice to avoid any argument. The family is relieved to know she's okay. This type of thing was fairly normal in the 70s, young people sensing freedom for the taking and simply seizing it. Unfortunately for Jill, she crosses paths with a killing machine that is just beginning to hit its stride, and she's discovered in Los Angeles a month later, off of Mulholland Drive. She's been posed, her sweater pulled up her back, one pant leg pulled down around her knees, the other torn and wrapped around her neck. She's on all fours, her fingers of one hand have been placed lewdly in her torn anus and vagina. The bottoms of her feet are clean, indicating she had been brought from some place else to die here. This is a spot so close to Marlon Brando's estate that the Godfather star was later questioned. Two footprints are evident behind her. These are the prints of Rodney Alcala. He posed the girl after having had his fun with her. On the body were found multiple bites and scratches. Her right nipple had been nearly severed by Alcala's teeth. Singed pubic hair signaled that she'd been burned between her legs with a flaming instrument, all of this while still alive. She had been strangled, but not murdered in this way. Only tortured, taken close to death, brought back to life, over and over again. The cause of death coming from being bashed in her head with a rock from behind. Once, Alcala had posed and likely taken photos of her by the infamous road. It is the immediate belief of investigators that they have discovered the most recent victim of the hillside strangler, who is currently on the loose, though unbeknownst to them at this time, it is actually a duo who are kidnapping, raping, and strangling to death young girls and dumping them on the hills. The death of Jill Barscombe nearly fits the strangler's profile, except for the fact that she somehow met a more gruesome fate at the hands of one serial killer than the many bound, beaten, and strangled girls to come will endure at the hands of two. Rodney Alcala has a new gig. He's been hired on by the LA Times as a typesetter. Clearly nobody runs a background check on the new edition. He's cocky as ever, having used his real name when applying. A colleague will later share that Rodney at times would show off the photos he'd been snapping. Some of them feature young girls, in the nude. When this colleague reacts to the inappropriate photos negatively, Alcala chides her for being bougie and not hip to the scene like he. The groovy, openly sexual and often overtly flirtatious new office hound whose confidence often borders on being vicious, sadistic, and just plain creepy. December 16th, 
still in the year of 1977. Georgia Wickstead from Malibu is reported missing when she doesn't show up for work, and all calls to her small apartment that sits within a large building named Malibu Surf go unanswered. The apartment complex is built around a well-groomed courtyard from which access to every unit can be gained covertly, if needs be. Police arrive at George's apartment and find obvious signs of a break-in. One of the three large windows that front her unit is missing a screen. There is a box under the window and scuff marks on the wall. The door is unlocked, so they enter, and are immediately overcome by the heat and the stench. The thermostat has been cranked to 90 degrees. They find George's body in the living room, on the floor. She's naked, on her back, posed with her legs in a diamond position. Her entire body is covered in bruises and lacerations. There is blood pooled between her legs. It's a horror show. Crimson spray on the walls of almost every room. A gore-soaked claw hammer lays by her head. The autopsy later finds multiple broken bones and gashes on her vagina. Georgia Wickstead's mother learns of how hard her daughter died and is soon admitted to a mental institution where she spends the next year. Meanwhile, Rodney Alcala applies to be on a game show, The Dating Game. He's soon slated to appear in the fall of 78, but until then, he has nothing but time. Time he'll spend collecting photos and an untold number of victims who he'll so easily charm, much like the nation, when he finally hits the airwaves as Bachelor Number One. Dark Topic is an 1159 media production. To support on Patreon, visit patreon.com slash darktopicpod. For merch or just to reach out, visit darktopicpodcast.com. Darktopic.